This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. The topic, the 50th anniversary of the first humans on the moon. In a few minutes, we'll talk with Kurt Brenneman, Dean of Science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy. Right now, we're joined by science author Rod Pyle, author of the new illustrated book, First on the Moon, describing the July 1969 mission that put Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. Rod Pyle is a writer for the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a frequent speaker at science and technology conferences. The book includes a foreword by Buzz Aldrin and interviews with the adult children of the Apollo 11 astronauts. Can you give us an overview of the Apollo 11 mission? So this was a program that had started in 1961 when President Kennedy first announced we were going to go to the moon. In eight very short years, we managed to develop this hardware, overcome a couple of setbacks with accidents like the Apollo 1 fire, orbit the moon in 1968 with Apollo 8, and then finally land there with Apollo 11 in 1969, July of that year. Just an incredible achievement. Even from today's perspective, as I look back, it's almost harder for me to believe now that we pulled that off with 1950s, 1960s technology than it was at the time. It's just an incredible landmark. Mm. But you mentioned that uh, President Kennedy and his idea of this moonshot was it was more driven by geopolitics uh, and the uh, race or competition with the Soviet Union, was it not? That's absolutely right, uh, and uh, it's, it's good to hear you say that because a lot of people don't really understand it. Um, there's this sense uh, in the intervening years, this developed as, well, Kennedy loves space and he loves science and so forth, and he certainly was interested in those things, but he wasn't that interested in spending almost 5% of the federal budget to get to the moon. What he was concerned about was how the Soviet Union was making us looking like we were standing still. They had been the first to orbit a satellite. They had been first to orbit a human in space. At the time that Kennedy made this announcement in 1961, we had a grand total of 15 minutes of suborbital spaceflight. We hadn't, hadn't even reached orbit. So this was truly a brash and audacious goal, which may be one of the reasons that it worked. Um, and it was very geopolitical in nature. We wanted to make sure that non-aligned nations looked at the U.S. and saw a better deal than they did with the Soviets. And so that's really what this was about. It was the one thing we thought we could do before they did. And you said that, you know, of the technology of today, uh, maybe this is a more doable goal. Back then, they were kind of going beyond what uh, their technology uh, provided them. What were some of the problems the mission encountered? There was a balky computer that nearly shut down during lunar descent. Yeah, so they had uh, undocked in lunar orbit, and there was a little bit of residual air in the docking tunnel that NASA hadn't accounted for, and it sort of popped like a champagne cork when the two spacecraft separated, the lunar module and the Apollo capsule. So that sent them a few miles downrange. So they're already off target. Now the lunar module's coming down, getting ready for a landing. There's radar data coming back from the surface. They also had left their radar on in case they had to abort their upward-looking upward radar to acquire the, the capsule in orbit. So there's too much information going in the computer. And this, remember, this was a 36K computer. It's barely enough to run a digital watch today. <laughs> so it starts flipping out and displaying these error codes. And nobody knew what they meant. The two astronauts, Armstrong and Aldrin, are looking, saying, what the heck is a 1202 code? 
the computer is no longer giving them their range of the surface and their speed and all that. They call down to Mission Control. The guys at Mission Control are scrambling to look through their binders to try and figure out what it is. One guy in the back room, Jack Garman, who supports Mission Control, said, I know what that is. It's not critical. Keep going. So basically, it's a piece of code inserted by a very clever woman at MIT named Margaret Hamilton that said, if you start to get too much to do, disregard the unimportant stuff and just concentrate on getting them down the surface. And that kind of software design was revolutionary at that time. So it was really an incredible advance, and I'm very glad they had it or they would have had to abort. Right. Also, one of the astronauts accidentally broke the ascent engine switch that would get them uh, off the surface of the moon? Yeah, as Armstrong was leaving the uh, cabin of the lunar module after they sat down on the lunar surface, he was trying to maneuver through this narrow hatch. It was barely big enough for him to get his bulky suit out of. And as he was doing so, a switch snapped off. But they couldn't hear it, of course, because they were in a vacuum of the moon. When they got back to the lunar module and repressurized, they found this little plastic tab and realized they had broken the arming breaker switch for the ascent engine. So they called down to NASA and said, hey, we got about eight hours before we got to leave. What do you want us to do? Because the switch has snapped off. So the engineers went through this big rigmarole to figure out a workaround. But when the time came, Buzz Aldrin, who was, of course, up there in the LEM, looked at the broken switch, pulled the felt-tip pen out of his pocket, jammed it in the mm-hmm. socket, reset the switch, and saved the Apollo 11 mission for 39 cents. So that's a pretty good deal. I guess so. We're talking with Rod Pyle, uh, his uh, book, First on the Moon. I'm from Amsterdam, New York, which is the hometown of Rocco Patron, who was the uh, flight director. Did you, did you know him, or maybe you're way too young for any of this? I was too young for that, and he was uh, the senior guy at the launch complex, so he was running it in Florida, and then once the rocket departed and actually left, cleared the gantry, then control switched over to Mission Control, where the flight directors were. But Patron was a very forceful, no-nonsense, if you crossed him, you better watch out kind of guy, Mm -hmm. very powerful manager. And, and one of a handful of people that really we don't hear about much, these guys at the top of senior management, but one of the handful of people that really made this program the success it was, an amazing man. Mm. And there was another local angle, if you'll indulge me, a man from Perth, New York, named Stanley Jevitt, was one of the engineers. And his family swears that there's a plaque on the moon with his name and other names on it. But I had talked to NASA when we first did a story on that, and they said, well, they can't confirm if anybody actually put a, a you know, might not even have been on Apollo 11. They left a bunch of stuff behind in a, in a couple of those missions. There was a uh, silicon wafer with a bunch of names engraved on it, but I think they were the fallen astronauts and pilots and so forth that had died in, in the endeavor. There was a, a little statue, aluminum statue, called the Fallen, I think, Fallen Astronaut or, or Fallen Aviator that was left behind uh, in commemoration of the astronauts and cosmonauts that had died during the 1960s. Not familiar with the particular gentleman you're talking about, but it wouldn't surprise me if something was left behind. We don't know exactly what might have been left there because, of course, before they departed, they tossed anything they didn't need out of the lunar module onto the surface try and save weight. So what might have been written on one of those scraps of a flight plan or a piece of paper, we'll never know. Mm. Was the moon landing program worth the effort? Well, if you're asking me, absolutely. If you're asking sociologists and economists, yes. Uh, the best estimates I've seen are between 15, 14 and $15 was returned for every dollar invested in Apollo. 
Um, and that's just raw economics. Because remember, the money isn't shoveled into a capsule and, and launched into space. It's spent on Earth. It's spent at, on NASA employees. It was spent on aerospace companies, machinists, the, the woman working at the bar and grill down the street. I mean, this money all went back into the local and regional and national economies. And this program really inspired, and this is directly traceable, at least two generations of people to go into STEM fields and science and engineering and technology. Mm. And that's something that we really need again today because we are falling behind in those fields. And a program like this, which is Artemis, which is NASA's newest undertaking, will help to re-energize that sector big time. What is Artemis before you go? Artemis is the Trump administration's return to the moon initiative to land American astronauts on the moon again by 2024, men and women this time. And the idea is that we're going there to set up shop and stay. We're going to go to the lunar south pole where there's water ice, which you can, of course, make out of rocket fuel and breathable air and drinkable water. And these are all things that are very heavy to launch. So if you can find them on the moon, that's a big step towards getting to Mars. Mm. And it'll be crowded up there. China wants to go, India, private industry. <laughs> yeah, and the Russians are saying they're going to go. So it could be a lot of folks up there. We probably have some treaty building to do before that time because we do have an outer space treaty that precludes people from claiming the moon for their country. But we do want to be able to have the rights to use those resources. So there's going to have to be some large and wide conversations on this topic in the next couple of years. Rod Pyle, I thank you for joining us. Again, his book is called First on the Moon. Have a good day. Thank you very much. You too. This is Bob Cudmore with a word about our GoFundMe drive, which keeps the Historian's Podcast online. Go to GoFundMe.com forward slash 2019-the-historians, and they'll walk you through the process of donating really quite simple. If you'd rather send a check in the mail, you can make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Our moon landing show continues. We welcome Dr. Kurt Brenneman, a professor of chemistry and dean of the School of Science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. How you doing, Dr. Brenneman? Very good, Bob. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you today. I looked at your bio, and I figured this out, and I hope it's true, that you were 13 or about that when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Did it have a big impact on you? Yes. Uh, the landing and all of the missions that led up to the landing uh, made a tremendous impression on me, uh, and I would say shaped my destiny in a way. Um, from that point on, I knew I, I needed to be a scientist because I wanted to work on things larger than what I could do myself alone. And I was always fascinated with technology, but it uh, tended to focus that even more. Uh, I still have a vivid memory of, of watching it on the black and white TV and, and uh, you know, seeing that fuzzy uh, mm -hmm. outline of, of Neil Armstrong stepping off the limb. Wow. Did you ever want to be an astronaut? Well, actually, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> from the astronaut perspective, uh, I knew what they had to go through, and so that particular piece didn't, uh, you know, that wasn't going to be my destiny. However, uh, in more recent years, I've said that if, you know, if I had a chance to, say, go up on the shuttle when it was operating, I would say take that in a, in a minute. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. Before we started, I'd mentioned to you that um, in, during my radio life, I interviewed uh, Alan Meltzer, I believe a professor of physics at RPI, an astronomer, uh, many times. And he and I talked about the space program, and we both said that. Like when I w- was interviewing uh, Dr. Meltzer, uh, he was um, it was about the time of the uh, what, they, what do they call it? The Journalist in Space program. So he was encouraging me to apply for that. Of course, I've always been kind of a large, flabby man, so I don't know if that would have worked. Well, you never know. Uh, you know, they they uh, they have a lot of firsts uh, that they were working on <laughs> at the time, so you never can tell. Um, I know that uh, there's been a lot of history at Rensselaer related to the Apollo program, which I was unaware of when I first came here, but I've become aware of in subsequent uh, mm. years. And uh, it's amazing. Even uh, a friend of mine uh, on the faculty of the chemistry department, uh, Dr. Harry Wiedemeyer, actually had more uh, space uh, microgravity experiments uh, than pretty much any other PI at one point. Uh, and that was fascinating in itself. But then, of course, we we also had our and have our legacy of, of George Lowe, who was actually uh, yes. a person at NASA who really made the transition from the disaster of the Apollo 1 fire on the pad to being able to actually get uh, Apollo capsules up there and the missions uh, going forward, starting with, uh, you know, the first uh, manned one, seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, we were all extremely impressed by, by everything that took place after that. Mm-hmm. And George Loeb, what, became president of Rensselaer, right? Or... That's right. He was not only a student here, uh, but he was he became president uh, after his uh, uh, stint at NASA. And, um, in fact, we have a lot of his legacy here, including the, the Lowe Gallery, uh, of, which is kind of a museum of his papers and contributions uh, to the Apollo program specifically. Hmm. And you mentioned something about one of the professors being a PI. I, I don't know what that means. PI means principal investigator. And, for example, a lot of times there are experiments uh, that go up on pretty much every space mission, and a certain, uh, say, faculty member or scientist will be the principal investigator or lead for that particular element of the mission. And so, uh, you know, uh, that's what I was referring to there. Mm-hmm. Sure. In fact, we, we've had uh, multiple uh, RPI faculty be PIs on, say, microgravity experiments on the International Space Station and also on the shuttle and other places. With, with the students today, are they still as interested in space or is that uh, yesterday's stuff? keeps on evolving. I think the expectations keep getting larger. For example, around the time when I was a kid watching the early development of, say, the Mercury uh, spacecraft, it was completely out of the question that we would ever be able to see what Pluto looked like up mm-hmm. close. And of course, now we've had a probe fly by uh, close enough to take an intimate portrait of it. And, uh, you know, that's simply one of those kinds of missions where the setting of expectations has just moved farther and farther out in, in the universe. And so I would say that uh, there's a great draw, uh, not only from the engineering side here, uh, spacecraft guidance and all sorts of other things going on in our School of Engineering, 
but also on what might be out there. We have a NASA Center for Astrobiology uh, that has just been uh, funded uh, again, and it's really going to, to take off this time. And we're looking for life in extreme environments on Earth to understand what we might have to look for out there. Mm. Let me, I'm not being whatever, a smarty pants, but uh, what role would a chemist play in, uh, in space exploration? Well, that, that's a very good question. And I would just like to circle back to what I just mentioned. Um, there was, around the time I came to Rensselaer in the late 80s, there was a program that had started here, which was, in fact, uh, started by a chemist, uh, Professor Jim Ferris, which was the, the Center for the Origins of Life. And, in fact, that uh, used a number of components of chemistry to try to understand what some of the um, biological and chemical biological processes might have been in the early Earth, for example, that would have yielded something what we called RNA world life. Fast forward to, to today, now we have a major center. We're actually under construction today, and it's a good thing that uh, they stopped the drills, otherwise you might have been hearing it down <laughs> right. the hall here. This is going to be a major opening in, in October. Well, we've now taken that to the next level, and it's geochemistry, chemistry, biochemistry, earth and environmental science, and a lot of other fields that are combined together. Mm. I asked uh, Rod Pyle, our previous uh, guest, uh, about this, you know, uh, and of course he, he he's written the book first on the moon, and he, I believe, is employed by NASA. I mean, he works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, so he certainly answered yes, but uh, the question was, was it worth it going to the moon? I believe it absolutely was. This didn't take me uh, much thought to think of this, and it's not just because of one thing. It's because of actually a plethora of benefits that have come from it. Uh, If you recall the history of the time, we actually undertook originally this as a national show of engineering prowess, that we could do this and we could do it in a limited amount of time. But pretty much as soon as that was something that we were thinking that we really could do, the science element of it came into being. In fact, even on the very first moon landing, there were at least two major scientific experiments that were set up uh, on the moon next to well, a little little removed from where they put the flag, a little farther away from the, um, from the ascent module. And uh, one of them was a passive uh, seismic system that they could actually watch the moon for moon quakes. And the other is a laser reflector, which is still in use and can be used to precisely measure the distance between the Earth and the moon. And so it became um, a kind of a focus of not only engineering but science. And then, of course, the fact we could do that meant we had to develop a number of different technologies, and uh, there were multiple uh, offshoots of that that per- are basically pervasive in our technology these days. Mm. And today, uh, we find, I believe, uh, China might go to the moon, maybe India. The the Russians are st- still interested. In fact, the Russians seem to have the only operating rockets right now. There's a lot of competition up there. There is. And uh, one can, can think that this is actually a couple of things. They want to re- uh, reap the benefits that we had also reaped back 50 years ago when we were doing this for the first time. But also there's, there's an element of 
being able to do more and new and different experiments up there. There's a national prestige element to it, of course, but there's also those ancillary technologies that will come from putting a push together to do this. Mm. And private industry uh, is uh, leading the way toward a return to human space uh, spaceflight. What do you think of that? I think that's fascinating, actually, and, and I see that there's a very good chance that this will be a way to put together, uh, say, public-private partnerships um, that can stand uh, essentially the costs that are going to come from this and have some true commercial uses ultimately. Now, a lot of times people will look at that and say, well, yeah, okay, we're going to mine the asteroid, you know, or something like this. But in fact, there are some experiments that have shown that, for example, the purity of crystals that could be grown in microgravity would allow new kinds of semiconductors to be put together that would not be possible, say, with materials grown on Earth, uh, and such things like this. And so um, if there's a commercial element to it, I believe that, you know, more power to them. I think we definitely need to have a coordinated uh, situation, in other words, for, for both exploration uh, and also for uh, technology exploitation. We're talking with Kurt Brenneman, professor of chemistry, dean of the School of Science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy. We're talking about the anniversary of the moon landing and the historical aspects of that. Um, for those who are critical of the of the space program, uh, they say, well, you know, we've got so many problems to deal with on Earth. Why are we directing resources in that direction? Well, as as I was mentioning earlier, it, it, it's more than just a, a fixed-sized pie that we're slicing up. We want to grow the pie. One way to do that is the way that it was done back in the 60s when this was first going on, and that is prioritizing education uh, to to give us a national and international goal. Uh, a focal point so that we would then be able to, uh, you know, to get the national will together to make it all happen. And then, of course, all the economic stimulus that, co that comes about from doing this. There were over 400,000 people involved in uh, various uh, projects that culminated in landing the man on the moon. And, uh, you know, this, this wasn't a small enterprise, and it was all across the United States in various areas. Mm. Um, you know, uh, most of the people that I knew growing up, including my father, actually was directly involved in some aspects of this. What, what did your father do? Well, he was uh, a uh, chief scientist at Hughes Aircraft uh, in El Segundo, and uh, he worked on guidance systems and uh, some stuff he never was able to quite tell me about. <laughs> okay. Well, another uh, criticism or point people raise, you know, with these billionaires want to take people in, in space. We've now had uh, space disasters, you know, lost lives there. People say, well, all right, maybe we can uh, explore out, out there, but we don't have to do it with people. Actually, there's a very interesting argument that goes on about where to put the funding uh, for, for example, robotic missions, and we've seen some tremendous successes there. Uh, for example, the, the, the Mars Curiosity rover was the one that uh, was of, of major focus uh, about seven years ago and is still uh, yielding an awful lot now. Uh, our next set of rovers and, and uh, sample return missions for asteroids and things like this are absolutely great, mostly because you don't really have to worry about getting the thing back 
Okay, on a sample mm-hmm. return, you would, of mm-hmm. course. Um, but there's nothing quite like having a human on an exploratory trip that focuses human imagination around it. It also allows experimentation to be done and observations to be made that would otherwise not be possible. In fact, on Apollo 17, uh, where Jack Schmidt was the, uh, he was a real trained geologist and an astronaut. The first time I think that we've actually had a, a full-fledged scientist on the moon. And they made observations, found samples that were absolutely key, and a robotic uh, system wouldn't have been able to do that sort of field work, uh, at least definitely not with the technology of those times, and, and probably not yet uh, requires you know, real autonomy and, and uh, independence of thought. Uh, President Trump, I believe, has proposed going back to the moon. It's a project called Artemis. Our previous guest talked about it a, a little bit. Uh, do you think there's any way in this divided land to to get people uh, excited about the space program, maybe as they were back in the 60s? Well, I certainly think that, you know, it's a... I know about Artemis, and I think it's a great initiative. Uh, I think reigniting the imagination that created the buzz, I would say, and created the ability for us to accomplish what we did there is a fantastic thing. I guess a, a case will need to be made about uh, the relative benefits and yields of doing it again, uh, although now, of course, we have technologies that vastly exceed the capabilities of what we had at that time. Uh, a common anecdote goes about, you know, your your watch probably has a better, bigger computing power than, you know, the guidance system computer. Well, all of them were on the spacecraft at the time. Well, that's true, except that they had very robust programming and they did a great job with what they had. Um, so I guess I would say that, you know, this is something that potentially could be a national focus. Uh, it is going to be difficult, I think, to bring um, this polarized a political environment together around this when there are uh, a number of fundamental issues separating the sides. But uh, that's not my area of expertise. So I'll talk about it over lunch, though. <laughs> right. Now, uh, with the uh, astronauts, let's say, of the Apollo program, our, uh, you know, again, previous guest in his book des- uh, described them as amiable strangers. They, they really, they weren't like bosom buddies, but they just work together. Well, I know that the original astronaut community that, that grew up uh, around Houston, um, I think there was a certain glue of the families. There was an astronaut wives club, for example. Uh, I think they even made a movie about that. But it's always showing up in the anecdotes here. But I think you're right. People were focused. Um, they were driven to a particular end, uh, and they worked together very well. And it was said that you could substitute in somebody on a crew that had already trained together for, like, months, and it would work because of the professionalism involved. And, in fact, that's another one of the RPI or Rensselaer connections that we have. Um, Jack Swigert, who replaced Ken Mattingly on Apollo 13, uh, in fact, uh, was was a backup crew member, uh, not training with the original prime crew for that whole time, but did a great job. Now he's a he's a Rensselaer alum, by the way, mm-hmm. and uh, you know sometimes we like to joke that yes, he was played by Kevin Bacon, and yes, he's the guy that flipped the switch that blew the spacecraft up, but it wasn't his fault. <laughs> okay, um, well, 
So do you think we will be back on the moon? I think we will. And in fact, uh, the question will be uh, when and uh, and what that's going to look like. Is it going to be a NASA show? Is it going to be a combination of uh, private and public um, efforts together? Is it going to be the first woman on the moon? There's a lot of talk about that, and mm-hmm. I would certainly support that happening. Right. Uh, there were some places we really wanted to go to solve some geologic puzzles on the moon. For example, the crater Tycho, which was outside of the safe envelope of landing at the time. But now, not so much. And so I, I think that there's a lot of questions that could be answered. For example, we've never landed on the backside mm-hmm. of the moon, the far side. Uh, there have been robotic probes that have done that. Um, but the fact is, you could do that and have Earth communications simply by putting one or two satellites at what are called the Lagrange points, mm-hmm. sort of oh, like uh, communication satellites that are would see the far uh, surface of the moon and the Earth at the same time. Dr. Kurt Brenneman, professor and dean of the School of Science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.